Hi, everyone. Dr. B here again. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Ask the Dentist. Today, you may not really realize where we're going with this, okay? I'm interviewing a clinical psychologist, an expert in raising children, and not just because of her academic background, but certainly she's her parenting background. She has three children, and many of you will know her for Oh my God. Right. Okay. You have to update your bio. <laughs> I do. <laughs> anyway, so four children and, you know, most moms are experts, but most moms don't have bachelor's in neuroscience, master's in pediatric neuropsychology or a doctorate in clinical psychology. And this is what is going to make, I think, this conversation very interesting. So, but many of you will know Natasha Beck as Dr. Organic Mommy. She has a great presence on Instagram. And that's kind of where my team met Natasha. We were trading little tips and secrets on how to get our kids to behave. And and it's difficult. I give a lot of advice on acidentist about what to do, what not to eat, eat this, throw away the pacifier. I mean, and it's very easy for me to say that, but it's very difficult to actually make that happen. So that is the premise for today's conversation. It's raising children. What does it actually take to raise children? We're going to talk a little bit about oral habits and health, but again, oral habits and health and overall health, uh, the approach to the external world. We're going to also talk about external influencers, epigenetics, the environment, all the stuff that is in our environment that is affecting our children. And then lastly, I want to talk about your involvement. You are on the board with EWG, the Environmental Working Group. And I find that very interesting. I want to talk about that. But you're also on some other boards, I believe. You're also with, you're on the UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital Board, the Los Angeles Football Club. Is that soccer or? Soccer. Oh, soccer. Good. Okay, good. Glad to hear that. And then also you married your high school sweetheart. I, I did as well. And it'd be fun to talk about that, but I don't think anyone wants to hear about that. But you live in Los Angeles and you have four kids, a husband, you're on all these boards, you've got your presence online. Where do you find the time to do all this? It's definitely a tough, especially now with four kids. It's what I call happy chaos in my house. And then I think as you have more and more kids, you find somehow you can just pull more and more time. I will say I, I do sleep less, which I don't actually promote, but I don't need as much as, as most people, I think. Yeah, I think every parent goes through that. There's a long period of time there where hopefully we become more efficient with our time, but we do take, we rob a little bit of our own health and, and sleep and all that. But centuries and millions of years of parenting, we've I think that is a common thing. So I think we're built to handle a little bit of that. So I just want to say that last time we spoke, you interviewed me on Instagram and you were breastfeeding your yes. fourth child. And I think that is a great example of time management. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful. And I think we need more of this. We need to be able to breastfeed in public. So I thought and that to sh was and, and to take away the mystery of it, that it is right. something that is beneficial and we can do it and I can work and breastfeed too. Exactly. It's not a big deal and it should be allowed anywhere, anytime but I don't think we're there yet. So anyway, so let me ask you this question, just kind of an open-ended question. How has your clinical and academic background helped you to be a better mom? I think that it's taught me so much how to slow down and to provide stability and predictability for my children, because I've seen how when kids came into my office, you know, not only were their eating habits off, their sleeping habits were off, their overall life sense was just off. So like 
And when that happens, you're just setting yourself up for failure and throw in your genetic predisposition towards having whatever disorders or diseases your way, it's going to be difficult. And so I think when I had my own children, I was mindful of that and how important those external factors are when raising children. I mean, obviously, you've been trained to the nth detail in clinical psychology. Is it easy to, I don't want to use the word treat, but to modify your child's behavior based on what you know? Or is it mom instincts that kick in? Is it a combination? I mean, I think you have a lot of moms out there that don't have the background that you do. Is it that important to have to be a good mother? I don't think so, because honestly, I didn't get as much of that information in my graduate studies. It was later on and learning it through various educational philosophies. I learned a lot through a pedagogy called Waldorf and through another woman, Magda Gerber, through her Rye philosophy and same with Dr. Pickler. There's a lot of amazing physicians and philosophers that I've read about and studied a little bit in my graduate studies that really helped inform my parenting style. And I think that if you just slow down in general, I think it'll help. You don't necessarily, you don't need that background. It helped me slow down. I think that's the biggest thing. I think parents, A, talk too much and they feel like they need to entertain their kids. Whereas I knew how to sit back and observe. That's the biggest thing I took away from my studies is that to sit back and watch and to not talk. What you just said is reminds me of something that you said on your Instagram page. I have it here. And I agree with you. We always, as parents, we, my wife and I raised three daughters, and we always would tell other parents when we talked about parenting, one of our key points was don't try and win the popularity contest with your kids because that really doesn't do them any good. And I think a lot of parents try and do that. But you said it very nicely on Instagram, making your child happy is not your job. Your job is making your child comfortable with being uncomfortable. So talk more about that. I'm, I'm, that's a great way to look at it. <laughs> so yeah, I think that as adults, we're not comfortable being uncomfortable. And because of that, we're just constantly trying to entertain our children, make sure they're happy, make sure they're not tantruming or upset. But in reality, we're doing our children a disservice. When we teach our children how to regulate their emotions, we're setting them up for success. But the only way to do that is to learn how we all regulate our own emotions. So if you're not ready to regulate your own emotions, there's no way you're going to be able to teach your children that. Right. And when you allow your children to know that it's okay to be uncomfortable with feelings and to have disappointment, to be frustrated, it allows them to know that like, oh, well, I can move on with it. I'm not always supposed to be happy because if you're going to be in a job and if it's you have disappointments or failures, you're never going to be able to move on from those things. And those are serious skills that are lacking in today's right. children and even, you know, young adults. Well, you're setting them up for failure because their expectations are unreasonable or unrealistic. Yeah. Uh, later in life. And so let's go right to some examples. I'll let you choose. I'm going to be mm -hmm. selfish and ask you about, well, how would you wean your child off a pacifier? We can talk about stressful moments. We can talk about taking you know, your children to a dental office. You have a story about one of your children needed surgery mm -hmm. for their uh, adenoids and tonsils. I mean, how do you get a child Pass it. Let, let's talk about Pacifiers. taking something away first, and then we'll talk about dietary 
behavioral modification there. But let's talk about that first. I I think a lot of parents want to know about that pacifier. pacifier. Yeah, Yeah, that is the biggest thing. Because of course, you can't just tell parents don't use a pacifier because it's something to help soothe them. And in the beginning stages, you're just about survival. And so you're going to use a pacifier most likely, and that's all right. But how you take them off, A, it's all about creating those healthy habits early on. When you set that foundation and that rhythm and routine early on, it makes things much easier. So with a pacifier, letting them know, oh, it's only in the crib or it's only in a car. That's, you know, in a car, right? If they're having difficulty in the car. But otherwise, just letting them know it's just for sleep. Because if you give it to them all the time, they're always going to have it in their mouth and they're going to get used to it. So that's my biggest number one tip is when you give the pacifier, limit it to certain places where they need it, such as sleep, because they need to learn how to self-soothe and that pacifier does help them. And then it's a lot easier to remove that because you're going to take it away from the sleep. You're not taking it from their everyday daily routine of, oh, I'm going to walk around with it in my mouth all the time. So that's number one. Number two, previewing it for children. I think a lot of times we think, oh, well, we're going to be nervous about it. I don't know how to do it. And should I just take it away? Children need preview. So just like you learn to read some books about starting school or going to the doctor, you preview it for children. Oh, in seven sleeps, I don't talk about days or anything like that because children don't understand the concept of time under the age of seven, but they understand, oh, one sleep, two sleeps, three sleeps. So they'll understand that. And you can actually make a physical, like a physical, take a paper and mark off the sleep in seven sleeps the pacifier is going away. You don't need it anymore. Your body is growing and the pacifier is too small for your body. Right. And so letting them know that it's going to be going away. And then also having an expectation as a parent, knowing that it will be hard for one to two weeks to have that adjustment. Sleep Mm -hmm. may be thrown off because if you have that expectation, you're not going to project that anxiety that you have onto the child because half the battle or half the part that's going on is is that your child is very perceptive of what you're feeling. So if you're feeling anxious, your child's going to feel anxious. That's going to consume them, and then they'll be really nervous about it. Well, should I not be? Do I need the pacifier? Wait, what's going on? They're not going to be able to verbalize that to you, but they're going to feel it. And so previewing it for them and then making sure to set the expectation for yourself and letting them know you're going to own that decision. It's the right decision for you. It's the right time. And then knowing it's going to be hard for a couple of weeks, but they will get through it and knowing that they will be upset about it. And that's all right. And that goes back to my original premise that you want to teach your kids how to be comfortable with those uncomfortable feelings. Right. Exactly. But there's ways to do it. Like, you know, I, I've got it like a whole reel. Like you can do the pacifier fairy. You can take the pacifier and bury it. And like a whole plant grows and like you switch it out. And like I'll take a like a strawberry plant if the kids are into strawberries or whatever they're into right. and switch it out. But in reality, most kids aren't that aware unless they're a little bit older right. that that's happening. But, you know, you can put it in the mailbox and get like a little open the door back up in the mailbox and get like a little gift. There's lots of different techniques that you can use to make your life easier, to make you feel better. But most of the time it's for the adult. It's not necessarily for the child. Exactly right. It's mostly about the adult in many of these instances. Uh, I really connected with I replayed that on your Instagram feed last night uh, and I showed it to someone. I really 
connected with it because I have a similar technique, had a similar technique in my practice, but that technique where you take the pacifier, and this is, you're right, it's typically with the older child, the one that can rationalize it. And this is kind of what I think kind of DEFCON one where it's been too long and you have to get that pacifier out of that children's hands. So what do you do? And typically they're older. So you mentioned on an Instagram feed that you would take the pacifier, bury it in the vegetable garden. And a few days later, there would be this wonderful plant obviously the plant that they most wanted, strawberry plant or a flower. And I thought that was wonderful. My method was something I called binky heaven. So I would be in the chair. The parents were just throwing up their hands going, we don't know what to do and we can't do this. So I would literally sit down and sit down and connect with the child. It would be a three or four or five-year-old. And I would talk about why they wanted this. I would talk about what you spoke about, about having outgrown it, that it's really the wrong size. And then I would ask them what they felt about it to try and see what how best to connect with it. But in the end, just to make this story shorter, I would say that typically when you're ready, we would take the binky, put it into a Ziploc bag, write their name on it or the binky's name or both. And it would literally go upstairs, mm-hmm. binky heaven, into our storage addict. And that worked well. Parents were amazed. Yeah. I kind love that. Well, and here's the thing. I love this story because... The clincher, the sales pitch that really worked was you can come back anytime you want. It doesn't have to be for an appointment. You can tell your mother, I want to go in and I want to see my binky. And we were serious. And one child took us up on that. They were about 10 or 11 years old. And I think they were kind of, it was a boy, young boy. And I think he was kind of being a smart ass, but he says, I want to see my binky. And we're like, oh no. We found it. We found it. My assistant went up there and found That's incredible. his binky and the parents were just like besides themselves. So, but yeah, I mean, it's replacement. It's giving them an option. It's giving them control. I love your example about, I think you called it previewing. Mm-hmm. Previewing is brilliant. I mean, just talking about it day in and day out. And, and I think when a child is confronted with a new concept, it's a survival mechanism to say no and to push back and and to recede. And so I think previewing is excellent. How would you approach the nervous child? We like to see, well, in my practice, we used to see children at like two or three months as soon as possible, because there are things that we can catch for sleep and sleep disorder, breathing and, and other issues, breastfeeding issues, which almost is too late at that point, not too late, but should have been caught sooner, like tongue tie. So it wasn't a big issue then because the child's, you know, oblivious, right? I mean, the infant at that point, they're usually not nervous. But by age one or by age two and a half, three, which is what the pediatric dentists recommend, which I think is too late, most kids at that point are very nervous and they're going to block their airway. They're going to protect their airway, especially if they're not able to breathe through their nose. And they've heard stories somehow or they feel it. It's passed on through their parents and what they've said about dental visits, how would you undo that and get the child to behave and open their mouth? And I mean, it's a profi takes a half hour and an exam for a child. Oh, I believe it. But parents have a lot up their sleep that they could use. Children process things through play. And that's the biggest take home message I could send to parents is that if you have a child that has a doll or some kind of figure that they play with, and even if they don't, Having figures that you can actually use at home where they have a doll that can go with them to let them know, oh, and if you have a dentist like yourself who would be so great at actually participating in this and doing the work on the doll first and letting the child participate, letting the child put 
the bib onto you know yeah. the, the doll and letting them check their teeth and right. see what the process is like children are just curious and you know i think when we throw them in there blind it would be scary it's as if you're going to mars and you're getting checked out by like for lack of a better word an alien and mm -hmm. you're telling them, they're, oh, we're just going to look inside this hole of yours and explore. And that's what it's like to a child. So if we preview these things and mm -hmm. let them do it through play. And yep. so if you get like one of those little dentist kits and you don't even need one of the dentist kits, you can you really use anything. That's what's so great about kids. Right. You can take like a like a wooden block and it could be, yeah. you know, pretend. Have, pretend. pretend. It's wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. And so you you do it with your child and let them figure out what it's like, then they've got some of that expectation set up already when they go to the office and then they bring their doll with them. The dentist can do it on the doll first right. and or they can animal. also do it. And then let them know that, oh, you know, having the parents sit on the chair, them sitting on top of you, I think is really important. Parents just say, oh, child, you're going to sit in the chair by yourself. And that can be a little bit scary for them. Right. Yeah. You know, as long as you're there and even having the dentist examine mom or dad smell first, I think is also a really big step so that they see, oh, okay, my parents doing it. There's nothing that is harmful there or that's going to hurt. And I see that there's a lot of visual. Yeah. Trying to also to inspire the child's curiosity sometimes. Sometimes that overrides their fear. It's interesting talking with you because now I'm, I'm able to put names to my techniques. One was we would have a special child's mirror, intraoral mirror, like a dental mirror, but it wouldn't be the ones that we had, which are expensive and they're autoclavable, but also they're heavy and they're metal. Yeah. So we would buy these plastic mirrors and then show the child how to use them. We would hold a mirror in front of them. I would hold the mirror and then they would play around. And then sometimes they would take a little pick like device. It wouldn't be, it would be plastic or nylon. And then they would pretend to be the dentist. And then they would be able to take that mirror home. Or if there's a sibling there, they would work on their sibling, the older yeah. sibling. They would get the, the older sibling would be the child, sorry, the patient. And that was all previewing, I guess. And yes. You know, so the and it's all and modeling too, and, and letting them the modeling and previewing and predictability, mm -hmm. you know, and then slowing down. I think the the idea is like, oh, we just need to rush through and get this done. But if we actually just take a step back and and just spend those extra three to five minutes with the child, you end up saving so much time on the long end. Right. And you make for a better patient for the rest of their lives, uh, someone who comes in on a regular basis and is not phobic. And that's a big problem in the dental industry. A good majority of people do not see a dentist on a regular basis in this country. It's almost 50%. And a lot of that I is was, cost. I was one of them. Yeah. A lot of it is cost, but a lot of it, Just more fear. than you would think, fear. is fear. Fear. And I had a complete phobia. I had. Yeah. I went through like eight different dentists before I found one that I right. loved. Yeah. And then finding the right dentist is especially if you're phobic, it becomes even more important. But I mean, this is why dentists refer to pediatric dentistry as community service, because the model, the financial model is that you don't have time to spend hours with the kids. And sometimes I would spend hours. I, I would get a lot of referrals from other parents that new parents that have tried other dentists and the child absolutely was just, no, I'm not going. And I was kind of the last resort. So that literally would take, and again, you're right, slowing it down was the most important thing, making it predictable. Also, I found that being true to your word, in other words, if you say to expect this, it has to be exactly that or better. Yes. And because they will catch you. It's one strike and you are out. Oh, you're out. They, 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 they're super on it. Yes. yes. And they are on it. And they're, they're very difficult graders and that's okay. I like that. So, but realizing that spending the time, putting enough time aside, 
we would always ask, you know, what's your child like? Are they easygoing? Is it going to be like quick? Do they have previous dental experiences? That would be a half hour, 45 minutes. Or the opposite would be multiple visits. Don't expect us to even be able to look in the mouth the first time. It could all be play for the first hour. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean by previewing it, just bringing them to the office. That's mm -hmm. one visit. Right. Checking it out. Like it depends on your child. So knowing your child's temperament, if they tend to be more of a cautious child, right. you know, and that can generalize to everything, whether or not they're a cautious eater, cautious to attending a new environment, then knowing that, oh, well, we have to visit the doctor's office first and uh, then go back and then go again. Right. Parents would also ask, when should I bring my child in? And our first response was, whenever your next cleaning appointment is, because we want it to be your appointment, we want them to sit there and observe. And again, I love this because now I can put words to it. That's the that's improving predictability, but it's also previewing yeah. for them. It's not them. They're sitting over there in the corner. They could be watching TV on the ceiling or playing with some toys or playing with their toys or just watching and that's a but great way to children go. are paying attention even if they're oh, holding yeah. a toy they are watching they're right. listening to everything yeah. you know yeah. they're listening to what you're saying right. to their parent when they're getting their cleaning and so that's what's so important and that that even reverts back to what you do in your home when children watch you cleaning up in the kitchen or doing the laundry it's the yeah. same thing it's right. all about modeling children mimic what they see right. so if they yeah. see oh I see mom brushing teeth every right. morning, every night. Okay, I, I see right. it, and I'm going to be more likely to do it. So I'm glad you brought that up. That was actually the next thing I was going to talk about. I would always tell patients to do a song and dance and smile and tell jokes while they're brushing their teeth and come out of the bathroom and brush and floss in front of your children. Again, that's previewing it. So how have you approached that with your kids? The brushing and the flossing, the oral hygiene moment every night before bed and in the morning before school or, yes. or the day. So there's a lot of routine and rhythm in place with this, number one. And number two, modeling. So even before they have teeth, I've got my fourth child who's eight months old. They are aware. People don't give babies enough credit. They're paying attention to everything. She is sitting there and she watches me brush my teeth. It's the most fascinating thing to her. <laughs> you know, she sits there and I do my whole routine in the morning and she watches me do it. Right. And I do that on purpose because soon she will have a tooth and she's going to need to get that tooth clean. And when you start early, I think that's the biggest problem that I see is that parents aren't starting until they have a whole mouthful of teeth, teeth right. you, you got to start when they have that first tooth no. so they get used to having someone in their mouth right. and then before you even enter their mouth you've got to make sure that they have buy-in you don't just stick your hand in their mouth just like right. you know you don't just stick a spoon in their mouth you've got to have that nice give and take reciprocal relationship mm -hmm. you know it's like this dance it's the same thing when I do, I do something called baby led weaning with my children where I do a preloaded spoon. So I got a spoon of food and then I have a second spoon ready to go. And then I hand the spoon to the child. And then when they're done with that, I'll hand the next spoon and they'll give me the other spoon. Wow. And then we just have this nice dance back and forth. And it's the same thing when you approach brushing their teeth. I've got my toothbrush, they have their toothbrush, and then I'm going to switch with them. And they're going to take my toothbrush and stick it in my mouth. And I've got their little, my little toothbrush for them. And I'm going to go in their mouth. Nice. But I'm going to wait for them to open my mouth and their mouth. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to say, oh, not yet. Mm -mm. And I'm going to slowly open my mouth and say, all right, now you can brush my teeth. And then slowly you will see they'll copy you and then right. they'll open their mouth. Right. So if you just slow down in the beginning, it pays off 
in the end because it will take less time to do it in the end. And also understand that you're not going to do a great job in the beginning and that's okay. Yeah. It's more about the long-term modeling of the behavior, making it predictable, slowing things down. Yes. And then letting them know like the importance and then building in that educational piece, letting them know, oh, there's like all this little food that gets stuck inside. And I'm, I actually show them like when I floss my teeth, I'm like, see, there's that food in there. I need to get that food out so it doesn't sit there. Yep. And then if it sits there, it gets to get stinky and it grows little bugs on top of it. So we need to take it out of our mouth so we can right. keep our mouth clean, just like we keep our hands clean. And I actually will physically show them what it's like. So that's why I like to show them like when I'm flossing, what it actually looks like. Good. That's modeling again. And I always like to throw in there, don't use toothpaste, not, not because of fluoride and all that. That's uh, definitely a reason because they may be swallowing it. They can absorb it through their oral tissues. But in this regard, I'm bringing it up because most toothpaste, and I think we take it for granted to a child, it has a burning sensation. It's sharp. They use hot, spicy. They use all these different terms. And if they associate brushing with that first moment of getting a, a sudsing, billowing, you know, a soapy mixture in their yeah. mouth that they have to spit out and there's the aftertaste, that could ruin it for them. It's for a long traumatizing. Time. It is traumatizing. Also you know? electric toothbrushes, especially the sonic ones. Oh, so those are way recommend... too strong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even for adults. I mean, many of the early sonic toothbrushes had a program that was built in that most people weren't even aware of because they didn't notice the the ramping up of the power of the toothbrush. In two weeks, it would slowly ramp up to its full mm. therapeutic kind of speeds because in the beginning, it was, it was difficult and sometimes painful for people. But for kids, those first experiences are so important and you have to go very, very slowly and you shouldn't expect success even for a few weeks and start early. You know, if you see a tooth come in, I mean, brush and, and floss in front of your child even before they have teeth. Yes. And then, and then kind of make it kind of, Something where, okay, when you have teeth, you can do that. And that way they're thinking about it. They can't wait. It's like checking off those nights slept or days passed until right. they can do it themselves. So, And um, then when parents are struggling with their kids, what I like to tell parents is that children love stories. And so stories where there's lots of picture language. So mm -hmm. if you've got whatever your child's favorite animal it is, whether it's a bear or a dog or whatever that is, you can bring that animal into a story and you don't have to be great at telling a story you just have to have the goal of like oh this animal is going through the forest to help other animal friends and you just right. tell that story while they're brushing their teeth and you continue this story each night only while they're brushing their teeth so they, yes. they get to hear this story right my third child went through a little phase where she just didn't want to brush her teeth anymore because there was a little bit of a FOMO that she was missing out with her older siblings and what they were doing. So she was so excited each night to be able to know what was going on the next day with the peacock. She loves peacocks. And where the peacock was going to the forest to help all of you know, her animal friends. And we would do this while brushing teeth only. And they made it just a much nicer and smoother transition for her. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, that reminds me of the story I used to tell my granddaughter and her favorite animal is the unicorn. Mm. Of course, unicorns aren't real. That's that's know, okay. We've debated that and that's fine. It doesn't matter. She's five now. And so if you were to take the narwhal, mm -hmm. which is a real animal that yeah. has that tusk that comes a little whale that has that tusk, that actually is an upper left canine. That is a tooth. Mm. And so I knew of that and thought, okay, well, the unicorn, that's a tooth. Hmm. that little thing coming out of the horse's forehead is a tooth. So I would talk about brushing the tooth, keeping it clean and how that's important and shiny. Shiny is also very important with kids. 
And then I would tell the story, well, we're different as adults. Our teeth are inside. We have more of them, but they're more difficult to get to. And so it's a little bit more of a journey and that all seemed to work out very well. But the stories do help. I love it. Yeah. Stories yeah. definitely help. Yeah. It's stories all about do. that picture language for children. Yes. Visualizing yeah. success. Yes. Interesting. Let's talk about diet. So that is a uh, root cause for most of the issues for health in general. I mean, we yeah. don't have to even mention oral health. It certainly is for oral health, decay, periodontal disease, uh, inflammation, yeah. systemic disease, uh, chronic diseases as we get older. So how do we teach our kids to have healthy eating habits? I mean, it's gotten more difficult in today's day and age because there's so many things that we don't want them to eat, yeah. but their friends are eating. Goldfish, yes. I love to pick on goldfish. Uh-huh. One of my favorite foods to pick on, but pick whatever you want, talk about it how they you want. But it's, yeah. uh, it's hard. Parents really struggle with the whole eating thing. And then the kids have a bad relationship with food and it becomes adversarial. And and then the kid will push back and, and maybe even be difficult and demonstrate that by eating a food that the mom or dad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it becomes a device. So how would you start off or yeah. and then talk about kids that already have bad eating habits? How would you deal with that? So number one, it starts at home with the parents themselves. You cannot expect your children to not eat cookies or goldfish if you're eating them. So that's number one. <laughs> so like, you can't be like, all right, I'm going to hide in the closet and eat right, this myself. Exactly. But just don't have those in your home, right. but have healthier alternatives. And I think the biggest thing is that we forget that our kids are very bright. They yeah. understand a lot more than we give them credit for. So we need to educate our kids. And when we provide that educational foundation for them, they can eventually make their own decisions. So I teach my kids what are artificial dyes, what are refined sugars. They know what those things are so that look for the better alternative. There's always better alternatives out there. Sometimes there aren't. You know, we're in a situation where we can't always get it and that's all right. But when you do have the ability to control your environment, do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you tell explain it to kids like that, as like a four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, like it's a little bit easier for them to take in because they want to control their environment. So you would say, oh, when you can find something that doesn't have a dye, let's look at it together. So when you're looking with your child, this is a long word. They're not going to know what it is because they most likely can't read yet. But this has so many different letters. They recognize the letters. They don't know what it, they are, but they recognize them because- Or it has numbers in it. In the or word, numbers. numbers. Or there's numbers, right? <laughs> Which, oh my goodness. And so let's say, oh, that's not real food. We yeah. want to find something that's real food. And you don't right. want to restrict your child or deprive them, but you want to let them know if you're going to eat the foods that don't help you grow, eat the good stuff. So instead right. of eating candy that sticks in your mouth, let's get a baked good. Like, I'd rather you have a muffin that at least has whole food ingredients. That's number one. Then you're going to go through and teach them about artificial dyes. And this happens during a natural conversation. I think people take for granted that, like, you don't need to sit there and entertain your child, but they happen naturally. Like, it starts from when you're changing their diaper. That's a time to connect with your Mm -hmm. child when you're changing their diaper. It shouldn't be something that's fast. When you're cooking, this is a time to connect with your child, to talk about foods, where they come from, what you're using and how these are real foods and whole foods. They're not these broken down chemically processed foods right. that we buy in a package that sits there on a shelf and lasts for months and months and months. That's and the abbreviated even... version of food, yeah. Right, and right. so I think there's a lot of educating going on during those times of connection when you connect with your child that we're, we're missing those opportunities. So that's number one. 
Number two, it's all about when you sit down at meals, it's making sure you sit down. <laughs> There's a lot of snacking going on and I get it. It's so hard in today's society, you know, oh, the pirate's booty or the goldfish, or you just need to keep filling your kids with food. But let's think about why we're doing that. We don't want our kids to break down. Right. We're afraid of the tantrum. Yep. And I tell parents, I, I want your kids to tantrum. Yes. It, those are teaching moments. So if you don't see that tantrum happening every day, you're not teaching your child. You're yes. not building up the resilience and teaching them how to regulate those emotions. Right. And they're going to struggle in school. As long they're as the parent struggle. is responding appropriately to the yes. tantrum. Yes. That's yes. The, as long it's as the relationship. It's the teaching moment. Yes. 100%. The parent definitely has to be prepared and ready for it and be able to regulate their own emotions first. Right. Right. You know, and of course, there's always going to be times where you are going to be dysregulated and not be patient. But then it comes into like, well, you just need to repair what happened. And that's all right. Yeah. You know, we've all had those moments where we lose it. But recognizing that, yeah, you can't always give your child what they're asking for, right. you know, but there's a way to say it too. Well, they're asking for the cookie or the snack that the friend has. Oh, I see you really want that. So number one, acknowledging what they want. Mm -hmm. Number two, validating that. Oh, I see that you're excited about having that. Right. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> so th that's the biggest part of it. It's just acknowledging, acknowledging and validating that because then they feel heard and then they feel respected. Right. Respect is such a huge thing with all people, not right. just between kids and kids and adults and vice versa. Right. And then letting them know when they can have that or what they can have instead. So you're not going to give them a snack like, 30 minutes before dinner, because then they're never going to eat their dinner. Right. So letting them know, oh, I see you want that. We're going to save that for the weekend. We're going to save that for tomorrow's afternoon snack. Or those have foods that we don't eat in our family. Those have things called artificial dyes, and they're not real food for us, mm -hmm. and they don't help our body feel good. We're not making that connection with our kids to let them know, let's pay attention to what our body is feeling. When we get a tummy ache, it doesn't feel good. And sometimes that's because of what we put into our body. Right. And so when you make that connection for them, it it's also helps solidify that, that concept. And so letting them know that what we put in our body impacts it is really important too. Right. And again, this extreme circumstances or, or case example here, perhaps, perhaps not, but I see it a lot. Parents that, you know, the child says, I want those goldfish crackers. And then the parent says, oh, well, that's going to cause cavities. And then you're going to have to have your teeth drilled out. I mean, Obviously, you want to educate the child and make those connections between bad food and, and how it affects your health, your mood, for example, yeah. Yeah. ability to concentrate, get along with other kids. But so again, I'm sure you're going to tell us how to slow it down, expand it. But how do you make it a positive experience so that they're not shamed yeah. by wanting that food? I think that's a very, really big topic, especially because we're, I don't want to call foods bad because there are going to be some kids that they're friends with that yeah. aren't eating the same foods as they are. And so we don't want to have shame certain foods that they're going to then shame on their friends. So right. be very mindful of that. There's just some foods that we don't eat in our family. And then there's some foods that help us grow and some foods that don't help us grow as much. And then there's a balance. Right now, I'm in charge of that. So I keep track of what you're eating throughout the day. And I'm teaching you, so eventually you're going to be in charge of that right. and letting them know that there's an anticipation, there's a buildup eventually where they're going to get to be able to do that. That's number one. Number two, when it comes to, oh, the goldfish crackers, I see, again, acknowledging, validating, and then saying, well, unfortunately, that food has certain foods in it that there aren't real foods that I don't want you eating because I know that it may hurt your tummy 
and it may not make your brain think as well. And so let's find a better alternative because there are better alternatives out there. And then when we do eat food like crackers, which a lot of parents are surprised at, crackers really get stuck in your teeth and, and break down and it's sugar. Let's brush our teeth after. I carry floss sticks. I have these little paper floss sticks awesome. in with me all the time. So my kids know if they're going to eat crackers or sticky food, they're like, oh, mom, can you give me the floss stick? Right. And part of it's like I've had my own oral health journey that was very traumatizing. And mm -hmm. so I'm very mindful of that with my kids. So that's something that's very important for me. But I do think it's really important because people don't realize how important your oral microbiome is. It affects everything. If your teeth are messed up and you're having inflammation, it affects the rest of your body and how you feel. Right. But just building this into your routine, I think, is what is important. So my kids know if you're going to eat something sticky or crackers or bread, you're going to floss right away to get it out of your teeth, at least at a minimum. You know, in the beginning, in the morning, what I do is I let my kids all brush their teeth. Even my three-year-old, she gets to do it on her own before they come to, into the kitchen. But after they eat, then I get to do it. And I sit there and line it up. Nice. And when one's getting dressed, I'm doing the other one. I'm wow. flossing. I dip it in the toothpaste. I floss. And then we brush teeth and we get a whole lineup. So at least I get a turn to make sure at least it's done more efficiently. Exactly. Right. But they get a chance too, because they do it on their own in the morning. Right. That's incredible. And but that's what it takes. And I don't think a lot of parents understand that. And of course, they're trying to get out of the house as well. That's why I always recommend brushing right when you wake up. Yeah. Don't brush after breakfast. It's not necessary. There's no advantage to that but it's less likely to be done at all or well, because yeah. there's just no time between that, you know, last piece of scrambled eggs and toast or bacon and getting out of the house and getting to school on time and then to work. So it's difficult. It really... You've got to find your rhythm, yes. you know, and it's all about preparation. And there's things you can do to make it easier in the morning, because that's the number one question I get with parents is like, well, how do you get out the door with four kids? You know, or even three kids. It's about preparation. I have all their clothes lined up for the five days of the week, and those wow. are their school clothes. So there's no arguments there. They can pick them out. They can yeah. pick which one they want, but it's all right there. Their right. toothbrush and toothpaste and floss sticks and water picks, they're in the kitchen. the kitchen. I have it set up right there in the wow. kitchen. I have a menu on the fridge that says, this is what we're having on Mondays. When they say, oh, I want toast, well, it toast is on Thursdays. Yeah, exactly. This is what we're having on Mondays. And so there's right. no argument. And right. just having those things lined out and prepped will save you so much in the long run. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. I, I like that perspective of rhythm. Uh, I gain back a lot more time right. with rhythm. And, and that refers to or, or takes care of the predictability concept of that child trying to control or not control, although a lot of kids do try and manipulate their environment, but it's really what to expect to have a safe environment. It has to be predictable. Right. Because kids under the age of seven, all they're wanting to know is, are they safe? And it's, yep. uh, parents think, oh, well, physically safe. But it's reality. No. Reality, it's about that stability and predictability that makes them feel safe. It makes them feel right. secure so they know what's happening next. Right. And you think, oh, I shouldn't put so many boundaries or so many rules. No, you do need to have boundaries with your children. You need to right. keep reining them in. There's certain things you can let them go out and do. But a lot of the time, you just need to keep reining them in to make them feel safe. I'm thinking of all the moms out there. They're loving this. They get it. They've heard it either from you on your Instagram or it's instinctual, but they can't really formalize it into, yeah. and then hearing it from you, of course, formalizes it and gives them hope because they know that it has scientific basis, evidence-based 
clinical psychological yeah. methods that, and, and I've learned a lot because I was using some of those methods, but now yeah. I can put a name to it. So I guess the question is, what would you recommend to moms and dads? You know, I was in charge of brushing teeth and, <laughs> and I was, you know, my wife traveled a lot at the beginning of her career. And so there was a lot of getting them out of the house and then picking them up at, at school, which I enjoyed and loved. I actually worked only three days a week. So it was Tuesday, Wednesday, mm -hmm. Thursday. So I had that Monday, Friday, I had weekends, which was wonderful. And so it's great. I loved it. My institution would, would probably not be thrilled that I'm saying this, but I honestly think it didn't really come from that. The only the thing that I gained from my degree is learning to sit back and watch because I had to spend so many hours watching children right. and seeing the development kind of unravel. That was what I learned. But in reality, a lot of it was from processing my own childhood, knowing what I liked and what I didn't like. Right. And, you know, my parents did the best that they could, but there was a lot of things that like I didn't like that they did. And so I changed those things. Right. And so being really purposeful and mindful in what I wanted to go on and parent right. with my own children. I, I like that answer. And I was hoping you were going to say that. I mean, obviously, oh. uh, with all everything you've learned clinically, academically, but has helped, but it's not necessary to be a good no. parent. And I think that's wonderful and hopeful. And but you're right. That's the other aspect of it is is what is your basis for parenting? It's yeah. your parents and not everyone. Your own childhood. Yeah. yeah, your childhood. And well. I think I think a lot of times we don't take think back like, well, what's triggering us? Why don't we want to see the tantrum? And is it because you know our parents just told us to be quiet and shut up? Like, yep. and that scared us. So we don't want to do that. Right. Or, right. you know, we were told like, oh, you could never eat any of these foods because we always had to be skinny. So there was so much focus on the diet. So then now we just want to let them do whatever they want. So you go the opposite way. But if you think about what's triggering for you, you know, and what's going on for you when you were a child, and if you process that, then that will help define your parenting style. Right. Exactly. No, no, that's very hopeful. And uh, these are skills that we all need to master, especially if we're planning on having children. We've got about 10 minutes left. I want to, as I said earlier, I want to talk about being a board member with the Environmental Working Group. But before we do that, I just want to say thank you for all the information that you have on your Instagram feed. It is very practical and helpful information. It's also easy as a parent. I mean, I just picture, again, I'm a parent, but I'm retired and I have grandchildren, <laughs> but I, I wish I had your feed back when I was raising my daughters. And I can just picture a mom or dad holding an infant and scrolling through your feed. It's very easy and concise and just very practical, kind of very helpful information that you can take on very, very quickly. So it's almost as if, if you spent a few weeks on your website, you would be way ahead of other parents. So I, I thank you for that. It's kind of what we model at Ask the Dentist. We're trying to do that for oral health. Yeah. Uh, so these are very valuable websites, I think. And I think people that are listening right now know that and realize that that's why they're here. So so let's talk about, I mean, EWB, what we're really talking about is our children's environment, what our children yeah. are growing up in, the epigenetics of it. Uh, in At ATD, at Ask the Dentist, we talk a lot about that. There are a lot of things that are impacting our kids, the forever chemicals. So tell us a little bit about Environmental Working Group. I use it as a resource. I've been using it for a long time. Anytime I buy anything, I look at it. I've certainly done all the research on toothpaste that are reviewed or examined by EWG. And, and so it's been a great resource for me as a clinician, yeah. as a parent, and as a user. So what's the mission for EWG? So, 
first and foremost, it's a nonprofit organization. People think that they're like, I think there's been a lot out there that they're trying to make money. Connection or, to the corporations. Corporations. Yeah. That's so far from it. There, yeah. It started off with Ken Cook, who's still there, who's the founder, who is an amazing man and so knowledgeable. And he just wanted to change policy to not have these toxins in our environment because he saw what was it was what was happening yeah, um, bravo. to Amazing. our health. And they created this database to help inform their policy decisions and what they were trying to like get lawmakers to change. And right. what they found out is that consumers were using it mm-hmm. and they had put it online so that they could help change policy. And so they ended up shifting it because to change policy was so hard yes. that they found that it was easier to get to the consumer to have consumers voice Go direct opinions. to the consumer. Absolutely. Exactly. And so then they took a shift and they 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 ended up approaching it from multiple avenues. And so they built up the website, the database even more, and then developed separate ones like the water database as well. Right. And obviously, you know, they it's a small team and they're working every day at it, you know, and there's so many brands that keep popping up. So they're yep. trying to keep up with it. Literally right before this, I was on a call for a board call talking about strategy for EWG before this. And the things that they're doing is just incredible. So it's a resource that you can access if you're looking up beauty products or cleaning products or baby products to see how they kind of Mm -hmm. are in terms of the toxins that they have. It's at least it gives you like a jumping off point to be like, oh, all right, I need to reevaluate what I'm putting on my skin or in my body. So at least it gives you that some of that information. And then, of course, they put out all these great research on PFAS, you know, and flame retardants and knowing like where those things are found. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, um, and what I like about EWG now is that there are companies that will formulate something. These are typically the, yeah. the newer companies, smaller boutique brands, whatever you want to call them. And they are actually checking in with you. And, yeah. and working on getting a good EWG score. I mean, that's wonderful, yeah. right? They've got an EWG verification check mark now that it's not just for the bigger companies. They also have scholarships. They're trying to work with smaller companies because oh. they want diversity. They want people who are doing good and having better ingredients in their products to get this check mark out there. And so it's like that where they're trying to create a standard so that people know like this is something that we can trust that our that there are their team of toxicologists and scientists and researchers are vetting. I've always been very impressed by it. And when I saw that you were on the board, I was very pleased and <laughs> and look forward to hearing more about it and and how what it's going to evolve into. But how old is EWG? How long has it been around? 2005? Oh, it, oh it's uh, it's got to be 20. It's got to be almost 20 years. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. been around for a while. So Don't quote me on that. I'm sure okay. it's, it can okay. started it started policy, like trying to change policies. Like I feel like at the 80s, it's been around for a while. My husband and I recently joined several years ago and it's something we, we do together and we're both really big on that. Passionate. It's great. And you kind of have to. There's a lot to know about raising children and it, I think it's become... Mm-hmm an even more complicated process, not to stress anyone out, but it's still doable. It's still possible. Uh, oh, yeah. Information it's just gave. about limiting and lightening your load, your toxic load. Right. You know, I think people get so overwhelmed, like, well, there's so many toxins. What do I do? Your body is naturally able to detoxify and right. get rid of toxins. But, yeah. you know, eventually we accumulate so much. How do we just lighten our load, I think, is the right. big, bigger question. And there's ways to do that. Yeah. What? Real quick, I'm curious, just thought of it. What do you cook your food in? What kind of pans? Oh, yeah. Stainless steel and cast iron. 
Okay. And you know how to season the pans and you've Oh, I'm very big on seasoning my Good. pans and I, and when my kids godfather messed up my my cast iron pan, I that was one of my moments where I definitely lost my lack of a better word, shit in yep. front of my kids and started yelling. And I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot well, believe you messed up. It takes pan. a long time. And the longer you cook in a properly seasoned pan, it gets better and better. And it gets more so, and more nonstick, you know, because yeah. there is no such thing as nonstick, but it exactly. becomes a lot easier right. and yeah. things stick less in it. And so then I had to reseason it and put it upside down in the oven, right. 500 degrees for an hour. It was a whole yeah. process. What oil do you use to season your pans? I'm curious. Avocado oil. And I use chosen foods because avocado oil has a higher heat point. So it doesn't break down and become carcinogenic like um, some of the other oils. And then chosen foods, actually, I have no affiliation with any of these things. But there was two avocado oils that came out from UC Davis, a study that they found that are actually pure avocado oil. Yeah. A lot of other avocado oils are unfortunately Correct. have lots of other vegetable oils in it. But chosen foods was one of the two. It was pure avocado. So that's what I use. And a lot of the companies that make these products, they, they can get around it with their labeling or the labeling laws should be stricter. And that is a problem yeah. with olive oil as well, but but certainly yeah. the avocado oils. Uh, no, I'm uh, a big fan of seasoning pans. It takes a lot of time. I'm the only yeah. person allowed in the house to cook in the pans because <laughs> yeah, I've lost my shit too. And uh, I use carbon steel. I use uh, restaurant style. Oh, carbon steel. Yes. I you know, French and Italian pans. Uh, they last forever. They don't look very yeah. nice, but they are as close as you can get to nonstick. And the thing that set me off on this was the research that I did that a lot of these new boutique brands that say they're they're nonstick, but are BPA free or... They'll say PFOA free, yes. but that's and banned there, there anyway. categories that they're free of. Yeah. But then I looked into it and it's like, no, they're using other chemicals to... And plus the yeah. pans don't last very long, so... There's thousands of PFAS chemicals, exactly. like what people know of as Teflon or right. PFOA. PFOA yes. is banned. So right. saying PFOA is useless, but they just replace it just like they exactly. replace BPA with bottles, BPS, a, a different a different kind of bisphenol. So it's yep. still there. Yep. And know. ceramic is very difficult to cook with. So, I mean, it's going back to what our ancestors used, cast iron yeah. or carbon steel. It's good for the environment because you're not going to throw away that pan. I, I'm tired it lasts of forever. throwing away healthy nonstick pans. It's my so my my oldest child's like I'm gonna get these pans when I'm older, right? Like I get to keep yeah. them. He's so excited about them. Yeah, as long as he doesn't use soap. <laughs> oh no, he knows. My son knows how to clean them. My husband and I had to teach, and right. my kid's godfather is banned from my kitchen. <laughs> okay, good. No, I, I I can relate. It's been over an hour. This has been yes. absolutely wonderful and fascinating. We talked about a lot of different things. Uh, I always like to ask a personal question, and okay. you're easy. We've I've already given you a hint as to what it is. Uh, so you married your high school sweetheart, as, as I yes. did. What's that like? Pros and cons. <laughs> <laughs> pros and cons. Uh, pros, we know each other so well, and we've gone through so many ups and downs of life, but we really know each other so well, and we can communicate so much easier because we know each other so well, and we've been together since we were 17, and we've known each other since we were two. I think the con is, I'm trying to think of con. There are no cons. I don't, I mean, I yeah. love it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, I agree with you. I think so the key point there is that you start out when you're younger and plus also you grew up in the same milieu. So you have very, a lot of commonalities, yeah. but you grow and develop together with all that adversity. And that's kind of yeah. like the seasoning and the, and the pan. I mean, it that, really that is. bonding where a that's lot a of great people, analogy. Yeah. I mean, well, I just came up with it, but <laughs> 
and maybe it's not the perfect analogy, like who's the pan, who's the seasoning, right? No, we won't go there. <laughs> but I see a lot of people getting married in their 30s or even late 20s, and they're their own individual people. And there's a, there's a lot that has to be worked out. And then it takes, I think, longer to meld those two yeah. personalities together and make them a working team. So I, I was just curious. I mean, high school sweethearts is not very common, but the ones yeah. that I see are typically very good relationships and and the kids are pretty good as a result, I think. Again, it's all about parenting, right? Parenting is huge. And then like our expectations of each other, because we grew up and we grew together, right. like we didn't have to learn how to communicate. I mean, we had to learn how to communicate, but it didn't, we weren't thrown into the deep end. We got exactly. to take our time. Right. And I think that was so huge because we got to take our time before having kids. And so there right. was a lot of that that we discovered before having kids. We didn't have to jump in the deep end, have kids, get move into a house or whatever, and right. get all of that pressure at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing Very power. Yeah. I really appreciate the time that, that you spent with us. Uh, I think there were a lot of helpful tips just from the oral health perspective. But but let's face it, when it comes to health, raising your children and knowing how to do that properly is a key aspect to health in general. And not just, as you said, physical health, but that mental health, happiness, mm -hmm. the learning the, how to be uncomfortable when those times occur. And and so all of that was great. So I, I thank you for your time. We'd love to get you back on the show. There's so much more we could talk about. Uh, we'll we'll yeah. brainstorm on that. And then later, I definitely want to talk to you more about EWB. I think that's a, a great resource. And I'd like to get more oral health information in there if possible. Yes. Uh, and fluoride is the big one. And I know that's controversial. And a lot of people, a lot of organizations really haven't signed off on that yet. But the yeah. good news on that is that, and actually they're meeting tomorrow, the lawsuit against the mm. EPA, which has been going on since just before COVID. I think if there's a legal precedent on what is safe in the water and in our toothpaste, then then a lot of organizations like EWB and will we'll be able to chime in and say, listen, this is what we've all agreed to. It's it's that kind of topic, which is yeah. terrible. And, you know, how have our children suffered that because of that? Because nobody wants to touch it because it's been politicized, right? Yeah, unfortunately. But hopefully, you know, we can I you know, we can add that onto EWG's agenda and figure out how to incorporate some of those um, right. oral health. So when we do another episode, I'd love to uh, just get a bunch of questions from our readers. They they now yeah. know you well. And then we could just see what comes up. And I always end these episodes with some uh, links. Uh, if you do have a question, go to speakpipe.com at Ask the Dentist. Uh, we've, a lot of the stuff we've talked about, actually not a lot. This is kind of all new, the, the clinical psychology aspect of it. But uh, you can go to our website. We do talk about how to, from a dentist perspective, on how to not take away, but let that pacifier disappear into binky heaven. We write about that. And then lastly functional approach. I think what we talked about today was really a root cause kind of way of looking at things. You can react to your children or you can go way upstream and be prepared for how they react and be ready for it. And I think that's what your background and your approach is, is reminds me of. And, and again, so we have a directory of functional dentists and that is at askthedentist.com slash directory. I don't know if they're all up to speed with your tips, but hopefully they're listening and they can integrate this into their practice. So again, Natasha, thank you so much. Say hi to your four kids and your high school sweetheart, and hopefully we'll be talking soon again. Thank you again. Yes, for sure. Thank you for having me. It was great. 
If you are enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to leave a review. This will help others discover the same oral health information that you've been using to optimize your overall health. As always, I appreciate your support and your reviews. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a dentist, doctor, or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional dental care provider, you can visit askthedentist.com directory and search or find a dentist database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, is a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.